If you're new or visiting with us, which a lot of you are today, um, what we kind of do in Village is just work our way through books of the Bible and our teaching and allow God to speak to us through that. And we've been working our way through the Gospel of Luke, and today we're at the, the, the second half of chapter 4. Um, and last week we saw how Jesus was uh, teaching in the synagogue, which is kind of like a local church, like a small church in, in a place called Nazareth, which is the town he grew up in. And his message was that he's come with good news for the poor. Uh, he's going to give sight to the blind, and he's going to set the captives free and, and, and release the oppressed. And, and we saw actually that how that's us without Jesus, that we are spiritually blind and poor and needy and, and oppressed. And, and Jesus has come to seek and to save us. Um, well, today we find Jesus on another Sabbath, another Saturday, in another town, in another synagogue. This is the pattern of his ministry. He kind of goes from town to town, teaching in the, in the religious center of that town. Uh, he's in the town of Capernaum, which is really a, like a small village on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, one of the, big, the main fishing centers in that region still is, apparently. Um, and so here we see Jesus in Capernaum preaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And I'm going to pause here, and we're going to pray, and we're going to ask God's help as we um, get into his word. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we just need your help this morning. Thank you that you give us moments of laughter and remind us of our humanity and our, uh, our, our you know, ineptitude. Um, be with us, Lord, because that just reminds us that we need you. Um, help us to hear from you this morning, and help us to, to learn to grow and love Jesus uh, even more. Um, Holy Spirit, uh, speak to our hearts in this place this morning. Amen. Um, I wonder what you picture in your mind when you think of authority. Um, if I say the word authority, what kind of images come to mind? Um, maybe it's a parent. I come from a family of strong women, and my mom is definitely the matriarch of our family. In her house, what says goes, and growing up, she was definitely an authority figure for me, right? Um, she's lovely, but you would not want to cross her, okay? And I have many times with bad results. Or maybe you think of like the army or police. Uh, for some reason, when I started thinking about this week, I had images of like military uniforms in my head. Um, I don't know if that's the same for you. I was going to suggest as well that for some people, authority might conjure up images of government, but at the minute, probably not really. Uh, uh, that's just not happening, is it? Um, but for me though, when I was thinking about gov authority, there was one person came to mind. Um, when I was in secondary school, there was a teacher who epitomized authority. Um, his name was Mr. Carmichael. And then by the end of school, me and him had a really good relationship. But it wasn't always that way. He was old school. Um, he was really, really scary. So if you've ever seen the Harry Potter movies and Professor Snape, do you know who I'm talking about? The cape and the, you know... If you think of him, you're about halfway to how terrifying Mr. Carmichael was. Uh, he was a Latin teacher. He used to wear, like, the only teacher that wore his, like, gown, like, you know, like, teacher gown, old school. Um, when he walked down the corridor, we said, called him Batman because his cape would, like, kind of go out behind him. And that's maybe why he didn't like me, actually, come to think of it. Um, and he would have no problem shouting at me or anyone, but it was when he stopped shouting that you knew you were in real trouble, like, if he spoke really close to you and really quietly. He, had a, he always used to have like a, a, like a long, meter-long uh, ruler, a wooden one. And if you were talking or something, he wouldn't say anything. He'd just come down and like smack it off your desk. And you knew he was thinking about hitting you. That's what he wanted to do. It wasn't like, want to hit the desk. Um, but this is what I think of authority. It brings fear, brings terror even. Um, it's about discipline. 
Um, those are kind of the things I think of when I think of authority. And you probably have your own thoughts on authority figures. But whatever you think of, uh, for Christians, the greatest study in authority is, or at least should be, Jesus Christ. Now, um, just from chatting to a few people this week, I think it's, it's probably safe to say that most of the time when we think of Jesus, we don't automatically jump to authority, do we? Um, most of the time when we think about Jesus, we consider his, his, his grace or his love, his mercy, his compassion, his kindness. And those are all uh, good and true and right things to think about and celebrate about Jesus. But in this passage and in loads of other places in the Bible, what we see is that, that Jesus is the, the source, the fountain of all authority in the world. He's the ultimate authority over everything. He has all authority, all power over everything everywhere. Jesus is the ultimate authority over every sphere of reality. Um, and what we see through this passage we read this morning is that the authority of Jesus is total and absolute, so we can submit to him in total confidence and hope. Let me say that again. I think it's on the screen as well, Ian. The authority of Jesus is total and absolute, so we can submit to him in total confidence and hope. When we last saw Jesus last week, we saw that he got a negative reaction to his teaching. But today in this passage that Victoria read for us, we see that he receives a positive reaction. People love or grip by what he's saying and they actually bring more people to hear it and more people to experience the healing and the miracles that he, he works. You could say that uh, Luke has kind of shifted uh, focus from Jesus' message to his mission because what's actually happening here is he starts to work out, do what he preaches. In Nazareth, Jesus preaches a message of the blind being given sight, prisoners being released, and the oppressed being set free. But here in Capernaum, we see what this looks like in real life. Jesus brings healing and wholeness in both a physical and a spiritual sense. Blind people are literally receiving their sight. The oppressed are, are literally being set free. And this is just one day in the life of Jesus. What we've just read happens in one day, one Sabbath. I mean, it's a pretty successful day. Um, but what the miracles and this one day are meant to do is, is give us a glimpse into what Jesus is doing on a larger scale. They are a, a micro view of what Jesus is doing in the macro. And in this case, we're seeing his absolute authority. And the first thing we see is that Jesus has authority in his word. When Jesus speaks, he has absolute authority. You see, what struck people about Jesus in this synagogue was specifically the authority in his teaching, the words he said. Verse 32 tells us that they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. You see, Jesus didn't teach like anyone else. There were plenty of teachers around. The, the people in the synagogue had heard loads of teachers over the years. The Pharisees' teaching was based on history. They like to talk a lot about history and tradition, right? And their teaching was full of quotations from other teachers. They repeated what they had been taught and then passed it on. But not Jesus. Jesus spoke as God himself. You see, the scribes as well, they spoke from authority, but Jesus spoke with authority. And his authority is rooted in his identity. He could speak with authority because he is the source of authority. He could speak with authority because he has authority. In other words, Jesus preached God's word, not just about God's word. 
Imagine this, the one who spoke the entire cosmos into being comes to this wee hall in this wee village, this wee synagogue, and speaks with the same authority that made stars appear in the universe. If we had been there, that we wouldn't have come out uh, saying, well, that was a nice wee talk, wasn't it? I think he did well. We wouldn't be saying that. We would have been gripped. The word astonished in verse 32 actually means to, to strike with panic or shock. It's like these people have been struck by lightning. And when you hear Jesus teach, it was like getting punched in the gut. And so people say, Jesus has both authority and power. And you see, when we hear the word of God, when we listen to it, when, when God speaks to us through his word, it, it's, it's convicting. God doesn't speak any idle words. And when we hear him speaks, speak, it changes things. God speaks with clarity and conviction and authority. And when God says it, it happens. Hebrews 12 verse 4 tells us that the word of God is a It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between the soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desire. And this kind of graphic, uh, this graphic analogy is meant to show us the word of God is actually powerful, that it actually changes things. It can reach into our innermost being and change the way we think and the way we see the world. When God speaks, he speaks with purpose. His word grows into existence and to change our hearts. I don't know if you've ever heard of Amy Carmichael. Um, if you haven't, look her up. She's incredible. Um, she was a missionary in India in the 1800s um, and did incredible things. And I, I could go down a rabbit hole about her, but I'm not going to. Just go and look up Amy Carmichael. But one thing I read that she said, I read it this week, and it really struck me. She said, if you've never been hurt by a word from God, it's likely that you have never heard God speak. <laughs> And what she means is that God's, when God speaks, he has the power to challenge us, the power to change things. You'll know if God is speaking to you because when he speaks, the authority of his word challenges us to submit to him, challenges the way we see things, challenges the way we think about our world and our lives and other people. The word of God is, is still powerful to set the captives free. Jesus' word still change, changes lives. And if, if we as Christians, as the church, are to have any authority when we speak, we need to speak God's word. Like, what other authority do we have? I was chatting with a, a friend the other night over a pint, and uh, he's an atheist. Tell me about how your faith like, um, impacts the way you live. But don't, don't, don't quote any Bible. And I, I kind of said to him, I was like, well, I can talk about it, but I have to quote the Bible because it's the only authority that I have to speak about this. Otherwise, it's just my own thoughts. And when we proclaim God's word, we proclaim it on the basis that his, still, his word still possesses authority. And that never changes. He just has authority in his word. And these people are gripped by it, challenged by it. They're shocked by it. But the next thing we see is that, that Jesus not only has authority in his word, but he has authority over the spiritual realm. Now, this turns out to be no ordinary gathering in the synagogue this Sabbath. Um, because in the service that day, there's a man who's possessed by a demon. Um, and as I was reading this, I find it interesting that, that movies and books and TV shows, they, they always, you, you, it seems like demons always hang out in dark places like graveyards and spooky old houses and stuff like that. But here was a demon in church, right next to Jesus, with all the spiritual folks. 
Um, I just find that interesting. We'll come back to that in a minute. And this, uh, we, we, we would call what happened here an exorcism, where Jesus casts out a, a, a demon out of a person. It's the first miracle that we see in Luke's gospel, the first of 21 miracles that are recorded. And again, I think that's because Luke is showing us that, that what Jesus is doing on this micro level, in this one person, that he, it's, a, it's an example of what he's doing on a macro scale. This is why Luke puts it up front. What did Jesus come to do? To abolish the works of evil, to, to get rid of evil altogether. Luke has shown us that, that Jesus has come to abolish evil forever. That this man is possessed by an unclean spirit, the spirit of an unclean demon. And this is, I think, Luke's way of saying, and, and would have been kind of common at the time, uh, of telling us that this spirit is, is the opposite of godly. Okay? Um, so God is light, this is dark. God is pure, this is impure. God is clean in that sense, this is unclean. God is good, this is evil. This is a, sp a fallen spirit. It was complete and, and unredeemable. But what we have to note here is that the spirit was unredeemable, but the man wasn't. You notice that? This thing is, is unclean and impure and dark, but the power of Jesus is holy and clean. And so he restores this man. He purifies this man and he heals this man just in the same way as he restores us and purifies us and heals us. And when this spirit hears the powerful word of Jesus, it, it cries out in dread and fear. It kind of reminded me a little bit of like bugs and creepy crawlies fleeing the light when you lift up a rock. Lovers of darkness recoil from the light of Jesus. And notice what the Spirit says. First thing it says is, what have you to do with us? It's like it's saying, what do we have in common? Um, I can't be near you because we are so different. What have you to do with us? We are opposites. You need to leave me alone. The evil spirit wants Jesus to go away. But secondly, it says, have you come to destroy us? Not have, we come, have you come so we can have a fight? Have, we come, have you come so I can destroy you? You see, the devil and his demons know what their fate is. They know what awaits them. This demon knows that Jesus has already won. It knows that Jesus has authority over it. It knows that the only two options here either are that Jesus destroys it right here and now or destroys it at some later point in time. There's no, so this is a cry of dread. And the third thing the Spirit says, and maybe the most striking is, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This evil demon says to Jesus, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. It knew exactly who Jesus is and why he had come. It knew it better, far better than the people in the synagogue. The religious people, the churchgoers. This is what is true about Jesus. You see, the demon knows who Jesus is. And, and as a kind of a side point, this can be a warning to us because it's totally possible to know who Jesus is and still not know him. It's one thing to have a confession of truth about Jesus and a completely different thing to have a confession of faith in Jesus. You can know the truth about Christianity, but it's another thing to experience the reality of Christianity. Now, let me stop here for a second and, and, and say something about demon possession. I know, a nice change subject for baby Quinn's dedication, but here we are. And because I think passages like this can raise a lot of questions, can't they? Um, 
Well, according to the Bible, our only authority, remember, on the subject, demon possession is when a person is dominated by the spirit of a demon and is tormented by it and left powerless. Okay, that seems to be what the Bible shows us. And we see this phenomenon especially around the time and ministry of Jesus. A few other times in Acts, but that's really it in the Bible. Uh, this time of, of Jesus is a time of activity. And, and it kind of makes sense when you think about it, doesn't it? Because if, the, if God himself has come, if, if, if Jesus has come to do away with evil, of course the devil responds with this kind of activity. Trying to do everything he can to disrupt God's plan. And the other thing we need to see about demonic possession is that the biblical writers have a category for it, and they just call it what it is. Then with other things like insanity, it's not even lumped in with other physical problems. They have a specific category for this, and they always call it what it is. They're very clear about what it is. We see this in, in Matthew 4, verse 24, uh, when Matthew says, news about Jesus spread all over Syria and people brought to him, and here, here's the list. He brought to G, the people brought to Jesus all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed. And then Jesus healed them. The demonic possession is not just lumped in with other ailments. But what we do need to see is that Jesus has authority over demonic forces just as easily as he has power over physical sickness. Jesus' authority over this demon is clear. He simply rebukes him and the man is healed. There's no hocus pocus. Right? Not like the exorcists of the, of the day. There were other people who did this kind of thing and, and they had uh, rituals and, and kind of spells that they performed. Not Jesus. What does Jesus do? He just speaks. His word is enough. Not glamour like in the movies. When, when we see uh, exorcisms taking place in the movies, it's not glamorized like that. <laughs> Jesus turns up and his authority is suddenly clear and he speaks and this thing leaves. Jesus simply speaks and the demon obeys. This is the authority of, of Jesus and his word. His word is enough. When he speaks, every sphere of reality, including the spirit, moves command. The, the demon, I love this. There's a little detail that you might have missed. The demon, Jesus says, like, be silent. It's literally like a muzzle. That word be silent is literally be muzzled. And come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him having done him no harm. The demon decides to have one last throw of the dice. I'm going to have one last crack at this guy. I don't really know what that looks like, but it was probably like violently thrown to the ground. And then this, the, the demon leaves. But the demon can't even do the man harm. It throws him down before it leaves him, but the man is completely unharmed. Why? Because Jesus doesn't permit it. This demon can't do anything except what Jesus tells him to do. Be silent and come out of him. That's what happens. When Jesus speaks, the man is set free and he is completely restored. So what can we learn from this? <laughs> well, the first thing I think that we need to remember as, as Christians is that spiritual warfare is real. The spiritual realm is real. Uh, now, we don't want to glamorize it because Jesus. We don't allow ourselves to live in fear of it we don't need to do that. We don't want to go looking for it. Jesus didn't do that. 
We don't want to overthink it or even lean into it, but we need to be aware that spiritual warfare is real. There is a world that exists that we can't see. And, and here's the thing, when we live in ways that please Jesus, especially when it comes to sharing the gospel with people who don't know him yet, we shouldn't be surprised at, at spiritual opposition. When, when the good news of Jesus is shared, there will be a spiritual conflict behind what we see with our physical eyes. Spiritual warfare is real. We have a real enemy who wants us to feel, who wants to wreck our lives and try to prize us away from Jesus. Our Christian friendships to break down. He wants our Christian marriages to break down. He wants to bring division and wreck our church. He certainly wants to stop others from coming to know Jesus. Ephesians 6 verse 12 tells us, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, over this present darkness, against the evil in heavenly places. What this is saying is that, that there's actually a, a wrestling, a conflict goes on between us and these spiritual forces of darkness that would try to destroy us. And we need to remember this. Spiritual war is not something to be disregarded or ignored. And yes, it was intensified in Jesus' time. But the devil, the enemy, the evil one, Satan is still at work in a variety of ways. 2 Corinthians 4 tells us that the God of this world is blinding people's eyes. 2 Timothy 2 tells us that people are in the snare of the devil. Warfare is reality. But we are not without hope. We don't rely on our own authority because of any. We rely on Jesus' authority, not ours, because he is the one who has authority and he is the one who has won the victory. So we, yes, we wrestle, but we wrestle uh, in his power, not on ours, the power of our mighty king who has already won, who speaks in every sphere of reality, does what he says. What happened here in this synagogue is a micro picture of what Jesus came to do in the macro. This picture shows us a taste of what Jesus would fully accomplish on the cross. And you see, it's easy to read passages like this and, and, and conjure those images of Hollywood in your, in your mind. And, and the devil loves that because it fills us with fear. But listen, whilst we need to be aware of this, we have fear. If we belong to Jesus, the forces of darkness can never have any claim or possession over us. It's that simple. When we trust in Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit and he makes his home in us. And, and if we are home to the Holy Spirit, God himself, how can anything ever take possession of us? We do not have to fear the darkness. I love that passage that, that Rachel read for us uh, at the start. Colossians 2, verses 13 to 15. Uh, listen to this. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with legal demands. Then kneeling the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. This is what has happened if you are a Christian. You were dead and now you've been made alive. When you believe in Jesus, you are brought from death to life because your sin has been nailed to the cross with Jesus. 
And, and if you've been nailed to the cross, that old you has been nailed to the cross, you now live in the same life that the risen Christ has. And this also means that, that on that cross that Jesus has, has, God has put to shame through Jesus the powers and authorities of darkness. He has disarmed them, it says. They have no power. They're fighting with their arms tied behind their backs. Their weapons taken away. And so we, if we are in Jesus, we walk in the power and authority of the risen Christ. We don't claim it's ours, but we say it belongs to him and we belong to him. We've died with him and have been raised with him. And so we walk in that same power. So the forces of darkness can have no hold over us. And I love in the second coming, in Jesus' second coming, he's just going to abolish all of that forever. Just as easily, just as Jesus easily with a simple word dealt with this demon, we can trust for sure that one day he will just as easily do away with all evil forever. Here's the trick that the devil wants us to believe. He wants us to believe that it's a fair fight. <laughs> it's not a fair fight. It's not like in the movies where you have God on one side and devil on the other side equal and opposite. That's not it at all. It's a fight all authority. all time and he knows it. Jesus is the mighty liberator. The one who came to free us from all oppression. And you better believe that this means liberation from the forces of darkness. So we can have assurance. Assurance that Jesus has authority and victory over our enemies. Both the ones that we can see and the ones that we can't see. And so we no longer have to live in fear. We live in Christ and he has authority over the spiritual. So good. And finally, we see that, that Jesus has authority over the physical realm as well. Um, uh, I love how some things never change. Like, um, I love at the odd time, you know, every now and again, we'll, uh, after gathering here on a Sunday, we'll Sunday roast. And uh, it's not like mom's Sunday roast. Um, and, and, and this is what has been happening, <laughs> apparently, from day one. Uh, after the service at the synagogue, there was the traditional midday meal, and, and, and Simon, who, who would become Peter, Jesus' disciple, invites Jesus over to his house, and, and, and uh, they're having their, their meal, their Sunday roast. But Simon's mother-in-law has a severe fever, which in those days, even though it can be serious now, in those days was a really serious thing. You get a fever, you can die from that. And, and, and Jesus heals her. Now, I want to I note the contrast here because we've just seen Jesus dealing with, with the forces of darkness on this kind of cosmic scale. But he's not just this cosmic Christ doing away with evil. He, he's, he's also the domestic Christ. He's the personal Christ. Jesus' kingdom authority is not an impersonal force. It's not just kind of some cosmic battle going on and, and, and we're kind of... We, we have or just on the sidelines. Jesus' authority is not impersonal. It's an unequaled power, to be sure. But that awesome power is always gently administered in the hands of Jesus. Now, to think about what totalitarian authority looks like in, in people, right? It's not pretty, is it? Never ends well. Think of all the totalitarian regimes, the great dictators. None of them were kind people. When you give human beings power and authority, it never ends well. But total authority in the hands of Jesus looks like love and compassion. He personally comes to you. Jesus is, is the 
is, has the, uh, Jesus is the one with all authority, but he's also the one who heals mother-in-laws. Lovely. Two things back to your home and, and meets you in your problems. And notice what Jesus does. Again, he just speaks. He rebukes the fever. You see the power of his, of his word in action? This woman is healed immediately. It's not like he speaks and then she begins to get better. She's on the mend. No, he's healed immediately. Jesus' healing is complete. And so she gets up straight away, goes back to serving the meal. And, and this shows us that not only is her recovery complete, but she's full of gratitude. People who are saved by Jesus will live lives in service to him because we're so grateful for what he has done for us. And again, we're seeing this now and not yet. What happens to this woman is what will happen to all Christians one day. One day Jesus will restore all nature. Jesus isn't, we think of working miracles as like some kind of reversing nature or tricking nature or a subversion of the laws of nature. It's not. What Jesus is doing here is actually restoring nature to the way it was always meant to be. One day Jesus will restore all of nature, all of the physical realm, so there will be no more sick disease or pain or fevers. Or dare I say it, COVID. <laughs> One day Jesus will heal all his people completely and fully and we will be healed forever. And I guarantee you when that day comes, you'll be up and about just like Simon's mother-in-law serving your master and Lord. There's going to be a world in which there is no more sickness. And so while we're on the way there, we pray for miraculous healing. Of course we do. We trust that God heals and we're thankful for medicine. And we're supportive of people who, 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 who work in that field. We're so grateful for that and, and how God heals people through that. But we know that both these things, whether it be the miraculous healing that God does sometimes or the, the medical healing that God gives sometimes, we know that these things are just pointers to the full and complete healing that is one day going to come for all God's people. And so whatever you're going through, whatever health issues or illness you have, you can know that Jesus has authority over your body just the way he had over this woman's body. Your sickness is in his hands. Um, and you can be sure that whatever the outcome of the illness, because we don't always get physically healed. And some of, us, you know, some of you know that only too well. Um, but if you are in Jesus, healing is on the way. If you belong to Jesus, one day you will be completely healed forever. In the end of this passage, uh, I, I think uh, it's a demonstration of Jesus' compassion. It's the end of a long day. He's tired, um, but word is spread and loads of people are coming down to, uh, to, to Simon's house and saying, you know, can, can you heal us? And, and we've got all these afflictions. And, and, and Jesus, even though he's tired and it's been a long day, he touches every single one of them and heals all of them. Anyone who comes to him receives healing. Now all this takes place in one day. This one display, he is the city in teaching and over the spiritual and over the physical. But this is merely a snapshot of what Jesus has come to do. You see, in this one day, we see Jesus entering a chaotic world and setting it right. What he does here, he will do over all the world forever. Jesus, by his word, bringing order to a chaotic world. So as we finish, what can we learn from this day in the life of Jesus? Here's three things to take away from this. Firstly, 
the authority of Jesus is total and absolute. Isn't this what we've seen this morning? He has authority over all things. The spiritual world and the physical world. And we'll see this again and again and again as we work our way through this gospel. But we need to see that his authority is exercised through his word. Um, Sometimes I think when we think of Jesus and his ministry, we think of Jesus going around performing lots of miracles and casting out demons and healing the sick and all this kind of stuff. That's not actually what Jesus was doing. Jesus never went on a, on a healing tour. He never went on an exorcism tour. He did those things along the way in the places he went as he went around the of the kingdom. This is what he says. We'll see this in a second. Even when the people try to get him to stay, they want him to stay because he's done such great things and they're con- convinced by his teaching. But he says in verse 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of the God to the other towns as well. He tells them he has to leave, not so he can go and heal more people, but so he can preach to more people. His priority priority was proclaiming the message of a new kingdom that he is bringing into the world. A world that he he demonstrates through abolishing evil and healing the sick. And of course, he perfectly practices what he preached. That was hard to say. He perfectly practiced what he preached along the way. But his priority was the message of the kingdom of God. Telling people what he's come to do. Telling people what you're seeing in this micro scale is what I'm doing in a worldwide cosmic scale. And we see this play out in his absolute authority over all things. Jesus, through his preaching and through his miracles, is showing us that he has authority over every sphere of reality. The second thing to take away is that we can and must submit See, this story comes with an invitation to submit. Because that's what happens when we're confronted with authority, isn't it? You either submit to it or you don't. (laughs) You either submit to it or you rebel against it. That's what happens when we're confronted with any authority. Haven't we seen this um, over the last two years of this pandemic? Authority saying one thing and you do that and go along with it or you question it and, and rebel against it. Verse 43 in this passage is the first mention of the kingdom of God in Luke's gospel. And you see, wherever Christ went, his kingdom went. And that means that when when people come to him in faith, the kingdom enters their hearts. All true believers are part of the kingdom of God. And that extends to us. If If you are a Christian, then you are part of the kingdom of God. And so not only do we pray your kingdom come, we actually want it. We actually live it. When we pray your kingdom come, we are submitting our will to his authority. Because you can't enjoy a king without submitting, you can't enjoy a kingdom without submitting to the the king. And so to pray your kingdom come is a commitment to consciously submit everything to his authority. Your kingdom come is not a prayer for people who want things to stay the way they are. Although we often pray it that way, don't we? But when we pray this way, we're actually submitting to the authority of Jesus. He has all authority, ultimate authority, and he would do what he pleases in our lives. Your kingdom come in my life, Lord. Make my life your kingdom. Make it in my life like it is in your kingdom. And so I wonder as we consider this, can we honestly say that we are submitting to Jesus? 
Do we submit to Jesus? And maybe you, you need to think, we need to think about the areas of our lives that we struggle to submit to him in. But here's the good news. If the authority Jesus has over absolutely everything, if he has authority over absolutely everything, then not only do we owe him our submission and obedience, but we can also completely trust his promises to us. In other words, the third thing we want to take away is that because Jesus has total and absolute authority, we can and should submit to him, but we can do so with total confidence and hope. There is a war on. We do have an enemy who hates us, and he hates us because his days are numbered. But because Jesus has complete authority, we never have to lose hope when we feel the darkness. Imagine that. We get to live even amongst the darkest days of our lives, with hope. We lose hope when we feel the influence of the evil one. We never lose hope when sickness and pain are in our lives. Why? Because light has come. Jesus has come to liberate us from the power of darkness and give us a taste in this life of the life that is to come. Tony Morita, who's a, a teacher I admire, says this, Christ specializes in hopeless situations. Because I, a lot of the time, I'm a hopeless situation. <laughs> and I just love that. Jesus can and does intervene and transform lives. And so we can submit to him, knowing that what he will do with his power and authority is lavish his compassion and grace and love and mercy on us. At the start, I said that we often think of Jesus' love and compassion and mercy and not his authority. But actually, what we have to see from this is that, that the one who has total authority or all authority is the one who uses that authority to lavish us with compassion and grace and mercy and love and forgiveness and healing and care and hope. He can and does intervene and transform lives. And one day, he will end evil forever and bring about total peace and healing. So I'm really finished now, I promise. Come back to our question from the start about authority. I don't know what you pictured, but I'm guessing it wasn't totally positive. Because like we saw, total authority in the, in the hands of sinful human beings looks like dictatorship, looks like oppression, looks like slavery, it looks like corruption. It looks like you trying to get your own way in your relationships. Authority mixed with human nature is never, in the hands of Jesus, it looks like defeat of our enemies and compassion poured out on us. That's like the perfect combination, isn't it? That's what we need. Authority in the hands of Jesus looks like healing and compassion for his people. Jesus has all authority over every realm of, of being. And yet with that authority, he defeats evil and kindness and grace and mercy and healing and protection and forgiveness. How good is Jesus? So let's submit to the authority of Jesus because when we do, we find life and healing. When we submit to that authority, we find that submission is freedom. We find that submission is restoration. We find that submission is life. Let's submit to the authority of Jesus today. Come Holy Spirit, let's pray. Holy, Holy Jesus, we, we just want to thank you uh, for your total authority that you don't choose to wield over us with dictatorship, with oppression, slavery but Lord you, you choose to wield your authority for our protection through the defeat of our enemies and through our restoration and our healing 
Father, we pray that you would give us your help to submit to you in every area of our lives. Thank you, Lord, that we have no need to fear any forces of evil anymore because you have ultimate authority over them and you put them to shame and disarm them on the cross. Father, for any of us who live in fear of such things, I pray that you would release them right now in Jesus' mighty name. Thank you that you have uh, authority. You've given authority to Jesus over the, the physical realm. Thank you that you are working your restoration of nature uh, in your world. Thank you for that day we can look forward to when nature will be completely healed and restored. And Lord, as we look to your table and come to your table now, Father, to share in your meal, we just pray that... Um, you would meet us again, Lord Jesus, in that special way that you do and remind us of your death and resurrection that nailed our sin to the cross and disarmed the forces of darkness. And we love you, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit, and work these truths into our hearts that we may live for you more. Amen. Um, we're going to respond.